Welcome to Kindred Media, a nonprofit initiative of Kindred World. Kindred has gathered thought leaders, researchers, and activists exploring the new story of the human family for over 15 years. Visit our website for our new story features, interviews, podcasts, and video collections at www.kindredmedia.org. Welcome to Kindred. This is Lisa Reagan, and today we are continuing our Black Men Breastfeeding and Social Justice series with Wisdom Council members from the Reaching Our Brothers Everywhere, Robe. Today we're going to hear from Gregory Long, a filmmaker and graphic artist who is also a work-at-home dad and homeschooler. In 2007, Greg began facilitating Fatherhood Matters to support expecting fathers and the vital role a father plays in a child's life which includes providing practical support for breastfeeding. We're also going to hear from Carl Root, who is the founder of the National Association of Previous Prisoners, a community agency providing support for returning citizens, and the Young Fathers of Metro Atlanta, a community <clears throat> agency that provides fatherhood services to young Atlantans. Carl has been featured on Oprah Win the Oprah Winfrey Network with host Lisa Ling, on Our America, a segment entitled Incarceration Generation. He is also the author of two books, Born Captive, Made Free, and Boy, Man, Father. So welcome everyone. Thanks for having me. I should also tell our listeners that we have with us today, Dave Mettler, who is in Detroit. He is Kindred Social Justice Editor, and Reshma Graywall, who is our Kindred Student Scholar from the University of California at Santa Barbara. So it is going to be a party, <laughs> but, um, but we are first going to listen to Carl and Greg's stories. And you know, as we talk about on uh, Kindred, it is a story piece that is so important. Um, this is where we glean our wisdom from each other. And this is what we don't do uh, very often anymore is to sit around our virtual campfires and hear each other's mm -hmm. stories. And I can promise you, after listening to Greg and Carl's story, you'll understand why they are on the Wisdom Council for Robe. I've already um, looked at their stories and talked with them, and I'm really honored to share their stories with you. So let's hear from Greg first. Okay. All right, thanks for having me. Um, well, first off, um, my journey into you know being a now work-at-home dad uh, I actually started out, I was a technical trainer uh, at Comcast, and I was there for 17 years. And uh, maybe around 2002, uh, me and my wife, we went to a friend of hers. And, you know, that was my first time meeting this particular family. And as we go through the house, I happen to notice walking through the living room, I saw like papers on the wall, work papers, maps and things like that. And uh, so after we ate dinner, the, the oldest child who is, uh, she was seven at the time, she walks up and she says, you know, hey, mister, do you want to play a game? And I said, sure. So she, she walks up, she brings this board game and she, you know, I, I reached down and opened the box because, you know, my mind like, okay, I'm, I'm going to help the kid out. And she says, no, she puts her hands up. She's like, she's like, no, she said, let me, let me explain to you how to play. So I just, I just kind of sat back like, okay, like that, that was different. And this little girl explained everything in such detail that I think that night I was just, I was stuck on that. 
you know? And so when we left the house, I remember asking my wife, I said, you know, that little girl, who is she? I was like, she's really smart. And she said, well, they're homeschooled. So it started to make sense, me seeing the maps on the walls and things like that, because I had never heard of homeschool. That's my first time hearing about it. And that became, you know, that, that seed for me that my mind started to kind of wander the possibilities and say, you know what, I, I wouldn't mind doing something like that. And so, you know, it worked out with 2006, um, my wife, we made a switch. I came home full-time and she went to work full-time. She went to work at a children's hospital where she still is now. Uh, she's a director at uh, one of the Southeast branches. Um, and so I come home to homeschool. Now know this, I, I'm used to traveling. I'm used to, you know, company vehicles and for everything to come to a screeching halt and to just now be home. And, you know, I, I think in, in taking it on, I, I think what I did not know and, and couldn't have known was that, and, and how I look at things now, we can have great ideas. I said this yesterday, I was gonna call and I said, you know, we have good days and we have bad days. And on the good days, everything is clicking and everything feels good. Your ideas are, are, are making sense and they're making sense to others. But the other days, which usually amounts to more than that one day, those same thoughts turn into condemning thoughts. All right, man, I haven't done anything today. You know, why? I'm just sitting here, I'm just wasting the day or I'm not doing something. So once I got home, I think that's when the crash hit and the reality started to hit like, what are you doing? So my mind is like, I'm talking about, I'm going to homeschool. These kids are going to fail. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm having people like, you know, what are you guys doing with these kids? <laughs> and so we, uh, we purchased the curriculum. And I mean, the curriculum was like, I mean, it was like an acting class. It tells you everything to do. Like, you know, you turn to this page and then you ask your child this. And I looked at it, I was like, I can't do this. And I mean, not, not that I can't do the work, but the whole acting out, because I was like, I've been training adults, you know, but can I tell you, none of it worked at home. And so that started me on just a place of really having to deal with, you know, and, and accept what I can't do or what, what wasn't normal to me. I'll put it like that. What wasn't normal to me. And I didn't know you know, I tell everybody now, I said homeschool became dad school because I was the one that actually was getting taught. Wow. And I tell that when I would do classes and even when I talk to people, I tell everybody, I said, as a, as a parent, you know, as the child grows older, the parent has to grow younger because you have to revisit, you have to allow yourself to revisit your past because that's what that little child or those children they're going to do they're going to they're going to hit those triggers that are going to either you're going to respond to a, a hidden expectation or you're going to respond in a manner to sit back and say okay wait a minute they're just being a kid but what's making me feel like this you know what's making me you know have these type of thoughts so um in homeschool, I, it actually, it took me a while to really settle down because I remember a friend of mine, we started a business while I was supposed to be homeschooled. And I, I mean, we had a building lease. And so I would take the kids and we would have meetings and everything. I had the kids in a separate room. 
while we're doing meetings, I'm just coming in, checking on them, say, hey, how's everything going? You finished this? And, you know, you know, and the people that were there, they were, they were great and making sure everything was okay. And during this time was also, uh, I, when I left, I started training contractors because it was no longer a conflict of interest. So I'm taking the kids to babysitters' houses while I go do a class, come back and pick them up. And this one day changed everything because I was taking the kids to drop them off at my father-in-law's. And I put one kid out, went to grab the other kid. And the second kid bumped into the first one and he fell and cracked his tooth. And that was the time I said, you know what? I got to stop this. I have to be at home, you know? So I, I just stopped doing the consulting, you know, as far as, uh, you know, the training I was doing outside, I, I told my friend, I said, I have to leave. And I think that was, that was the best decision that I could have made, but it took me a minute to get there because I just wasn't, I just wasn't used to that. It wasn't exciting, <laughs> you know? Uh, and at the same time, that, that ego or that pride to say, I can do this and still do this and manage, I can make it work. So, you know, that, that incident with my child cracking his tooth, that humbled me, you know? So homeschool wound up being a place where, you know, the things that I said or had in my mind that I would like to do as a dad, see my kids, you know, be able to grow up and experience, that's where it actually happened because that's where the, you know, the, the, the giving up my life, <laughs> you know, actually being there, um, you know, I mean, and that's the thing being at home, you, you, it never stops meaning the day because before school, you're, you're cooking breakfast, you're getting the kids ready. Once you start school, what happens at the end? At the end, you got to be the playmate, <laughs> you know? So it just never stops all the way to dinner time, all the way to bedtime. And, but this was actually emotional healing I think, uh, because me and my dad, we, we, we're close now, but we weren't close. He just wasn't in my life. Uh, I mean, we traveled together. That's pretty much it. Um, but having that opportunity to, you know, be around two boys and, and let me, let me add this part. And can I tell you, I did not want boys. And I, it made me think about it. I said, why did I want boys? <clears throat> and I remember in my memory, boys got treated rough. And I always saw the girls get treated nice. So you hear the term daddy's girl. Now, I'm, I'm 51 years old. So, I mean, me growing up, even when I would look at TV shows, the boys always got in trouble. You know, the girls, they're the ones that went on to school. And, you know, it was like, they, came, they, were, at their, they were happy and and so that, that image was just stuck in my mind. And so I really didn't want a boy because I didn't see myself as being qualified to raise a boy, you know? So, um, you know, as, as far as just that whole journey, it was, it was actually my healing um, because, I mean, I understand now, and I heard a guy say this, he said, um, he said there are certain stages in a child's life where you know you're the nurturer you're the teacher and then he said you know you're also the person who's the disciplinary person 
but then you go to the friend stage and I can honestly say, you know, I got to experience that and experience it now, you know, but I never saw my parents or the, the people, I, the kids I grew up with and growing up as friends, you know, so um, that was really uh, pivotal for me. And I remember in 2007, it's funny, I left everything alone at the consulting and, and, and outside training contractors. And I get a call from the director at Washington Hospital Center. And, uh, you know, the lady says, she says, you don't know me. She said, but I think you'll be great for this position. And, you know, she explained to me, she said, we have a fatherhood class uh, and it hasn't been going on, you know, going that long. She said, but I think you'll be great. Now, I don't know this woman. I don't know where she got her information from. Come to find out, my wife knew her, so she would hear stories of what's going on at home uh-huh. from my uh-huh. wife, and that's when she wound up calling. Um, and so I wound up, you know, doing the class, and that class became an eye opener for me because, I mean, it was it was people from all over the world in the class. You know, I met people from from like India with a range, with arranged marriage, uh, you know, from every country. And it gave me an opportunity just to see that fatherhood is a, is a, there's a global lack. So at one point, you know, I, I'm, I'm leaving home and I'm, I'm trying to learn reading books and, you know, going to different seminars and classes and just allow myself to go through, uh, my insecurities and different things to grow through to be a better person. And during this class, I got to find out, you know, that everybody was having the same problem. And this class was for new dads. And I mean, literally, these guys were terrified. This is doctors, lawyers, you name it. And they will all have the same story. And that no one taught them. They were happy to have a kid. But after that, they didn't know what to do. I remember one guy, he was actually crying after class because he said, I'm, he said, I'm successful in everything. He said, I have, I have my own business and everything. He said, but I'm terrified in being a father. I'm terrified in messing this child up. So for me, that every class became me just sharing my story, being, being homeschool, you know, being home and what was happening to me and the things that I was learning. And um, that class did really well. I got to meet some really great people. Uh, some people still contacted me after class. But that, like I said, that was a real eye opener for me just to see that I wasn't the only one. You know, and then having a kid is a great thing, but 90% of us go into it. Like you said, with your, you know, when you shared your story, and that is, we don't know anything about, you know, how to take care, how to nurture, how to, how to, to connect and to, to understand. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that was a major part of this, you know, this journey. Um, Greg, when you're, um, in, you're in Washington, DC for those classes, is that right? Is that why it wasn't an interesting, sorry, international community that you were finding there? Yes, that's uh, Washington Hospital Center, uh, the MedStar. Yep. And you said people uh, were terrified. You, you saw the same issue coming up. 
And mm -hmm. can you define the issue a little more? It, it seems to be like there is a universal thread there. And so you know, just like to kind of articulate that. What, what was it you were, what were they saying that sounded the okay. same? Well, the, the class was set up where they had two um, female facilitators and they would have the, you know, the both parents there, okay? And they would take them through the whole childbirth and everything. And then they would split so that the women would go on one side and then the men would go on, one, on the other side. And that's when I would come in. And most of the men, really almost all, they were insecure because they could now see that the mother was steps ahead of them. So the, most of the moms had a level of, of um, emergency or seriousness that they didn't have. They thought it would just kick on. <laughs> they thought something would just turn on. And so in, in class, for one, they would feel like something was wrong with them because they see everything that the wife is doing and, or the mother, and she's, she's pretty much telling them what to do. So, so they had an insecurity in that area. Like, what's wrong with me? Why don't I see these things? Why can't I react like this? Why do I feel like I'm being told all the time what to do? And, and this is my child too. Um, the other is the reality, and I think this happens with, you know, just, just the birth of a child, them looking at themselves and realizing that that is one area that they were not prepared for. Meaning you can be, you can go to college, you can, you can take classes, but they did not have that, uh, how can I say that, that confidence to be able to say, I'm going to be okay. Because their mind was more so on, I'm going to destroy this kid because when they look at themselves, now they're looking at their life and they're looking at, you know, whether they had trauma in their life or whether they just had fun in their life. I mean, fun in their life being, you know, they, was, they were a womanizer or if they were just a person who was just really focused in some areas and just never had a thought about one day raising kids. And that the one thing that will come out a lot is like, I don't want to destroy this child. And so in the class, mm -hmm. I'll bring up one, one incident, there was a guy, and what I would do is I would ask, you know, do you know what, you know, are you having a boy or And, you know, they would raise their hands, pretending on what they were having. And I remember this one guy, he smiled, he said, you know, he's having a girl. And I said, um, I asked him, I said, you know, that's great to see you smile. And I said, why do you smile? And he said, cause I can see myself. He said, you know, I'm, I'm going to be, you know, she's going to be daddy's girl. He said, I can see myself, you know, I mean, he played it all out, you know, bouncing her on his knee. And, you know, when, the, you know, the boys come in, he said, he said, I know that whatever she's asked, she asked, I'm going to wind up having to do it. And he just had a smile on his face and I didn't knock him for it, but I had to challenge him. And I said, well, let's play this out. I said, do you understand that what you're saying is, is that you're gonna raise a very manipulative young girl who's gonna be trained, that you're gonna train her that she's gonna be able to get her way with males. And I said, that's what you are basically saying. And his mouth kind of dropped. And I kind of had to explain to him that, you know, the, the term daddy's girl, it's not bad, 
you know, but it, 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 the, the title of daddy girl does not mean that that is all the, the intricacies and the disciplines and the love and instruction that goes in it. It's just like having a new car, you know? And so in those classes, we will wind up having to go into, you know, uh, what is it that goes into the makeup of a child? Understanding that, you know, scientists have said that after the age of seven, your child's belief system is already, it's already fully formed. And that after, you know, to be able to break that, it has to be some type of a spiritual awakening or um, some catastrophic event to shake the belief system. And so I would try to really focus on those years from, from while they were in the womb to seven, you know, and kind of break it down, you know from birth to three, you know, when people say the terrible, the terrible twos, and I would say, you know, really that, that is the wrong statement because that points at the child and it points at the child in a way to say that this is the age when all the problems come out. And I would say, no, that's not true. I said, this is the age where you get to meet the personality because from the years when this child was born, you know, this, this child, you, you get to hear, the, the, the responses as far as physical needs, bodily needs, I'm, I'm hungry, you know, and emotional, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm alone right now. I, I, I want to be reassured that I'm, I'm loved through touch, you know, but those are some of the, the, the things that we would touch on that, I mean, who knows that? I, who knows those things? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah no, it's not. Yeah, no, it's what passes for um, parenting in our culture is just uh, really reactionary and based on mythology. It's not, we, we know better now. We're all trying to do better, but, mm -hmm. but uh, most of us didn't get the benefit of that. <laughs> so we're winging it with our own kids. I, I've always uh, told my, uh, my niece, actually, she was born before my son. I got to experiment on you, Laura. Sorry. <laughs> I was a little more prepared when my son came along. But um, so I, I, the part that I really find heartwarming, Greg, I'll just say this um, and see if there's anything else you want to say about that before we go to Carl, but is that the, sounds like the fathers that you met came in, as you said, terrified and feeling incompetent and not prepared, but it sounds like over time with the sharing in the group, which is one of the reasons I, I think that these groups are so very, very important. I mean, uh, you know, we, we really have to own that this is an artificial creation that's trying to uh, replace our communities and villages and connections that we used to have more mm -hmm. naturally in our culture. But that's what we do. I know because we, we um, Kendrick used to run a bunch of support groups around the country and um, while they were remarkable, um, they, it was still, I had to go home by myself. <laughs> I wanted to take everybody with me. Right. Um, so, but it sounds like there was a transformation that you witnessed that was really healing in the groups of fathers that were sharing. Yes. Yes. And I mean, to the point that after the class, there were times where, <clears throat> you know, in, in, in talking to mom and dad, so sometimes the, the, the mom would come up to me afterwards and say, I don't know what you guys talked about, but thank you so much, you um, know? And, and, and that's another thing in the class. And, and that is, I would use this example uh, when it came to communication. And in being in management, one thing that I learned is that like, 
in those days, like, and it's probably still today, but Comcast would have like products lined up like for like the next eight years, you know, and which most companies do today. But in that, when it was time to roll out a new product, the meetings had to increase because you had to prepare if it was, you know, we did when they started high speed internet, you know, where are you going to, where we're going to store the modem, what contractors are going to do the internet. We have to go over who's going to do the, the training and all those types of things, the billing. And I, I took that principle to say, you know, in most relationships, the level of communication does not increase once a child comes. Oh. It stays the same. And so once the child comes, it's like, literally, it's like, I'm, I'm happy. But then once that wears off and that, that baby's hungry and, you know, trips to the doctors and your role, that's one thing we talked about a lot is the role of the dad, you know, and, and, but how does it play with mom? How does it work with mom? And I remember, I know with me and my wife, we, uh, we started to read a book, like, two days a week and the book was to to grow us in relationship so we we read books I would now YouTube wasn't out back then but like I would tell people I say you know well now you have YouTube you can actually go and both of you just sit down and invest and take like you know 45 minutes and watch a marriage seminar yeah and I remember a guy he gave me this great wisdom when we first got married and he said um he said Greg he said everything in your wife is not for you to tell her he said she's only going to receive <laughs> he said maybe 40 percent he said the other 60 has to come from someone else and it made me really kind of look at it like because at that time we were like newlyweds like we, we've been married we're going on 21 years so we you know and, and being newlyweds you know that that first two years i learned is the roughest and we were like we were like kind of bumping heads and weren't hearing each other and when he gave me that advice, I remember I went to the, to the bookstore and I got men are from Mars, women are from Venus, yeah. but I got it on audio. And I said, I said, I said, look, I said, let's, let's take a trip to the mountains. And I said, I'm gonna listen to this audio and I'm gonna see what I need to deal with for myself. And I said, you know, I said, I appreciate it. You know, anything you hear for yourself, and I'm going to tell you, we took that ride. That guy said everything I was trying to say. And he said everything that she was trying to say. So what the guy said, it made so much sense to me that we go in this relationship and not understanding the realities that that doesn't mean it because we're in a relationship that everything is going to come from you. Everything that you don't like is not going to be dealt with immediately. You know, they both both need time to grow. So if the couples don't grow, then the baby gets to, you know, he's the he or she is the recipient of that. And so that's another thing that I, I, I had to in, in include it in the, the Fatherhood Matters class is the relational part between them and mom. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so we're going to come back to Greg and Carl together after we listen to Carl's story. Um, and thank you so much, Greg. I already have a list of questions here, but we're going to come back in just a second. And Reshma and Dave will join us too. So over to you, Carl. Yes, um, my story is a little bit different from Greg's in that 
um, I grew up during a time, I'm a, I'm a baby boomer, so I grew up during a time of toxic masculinity, okay? Uh, there was no such thing as, as, as women's rights and all that kind of stuff. So the model of manhood that I had before me was, it was nothing that I really appreciated. I, I thought it was demeaning and, and I thought they were pretty mean. I thought men were pretty mean. So I immediately embarked on a, because I had a mother who had, was, you know, a mother who had several children and was just a sweetheart, but, you know, had a, a relationships, uh, had a couple of marriages. And because she was such a sweetheart, a lot of times she got, for lack of a better word, she got mistreated, okay? But as a kid, I was the baby boy at that time. I was watching that, and I had three sisters above me, and my oldest brother was 15 years older than me, so he wasn't really around when I came on the scene. But watching my sisters and my mother struggle because of the absence of not only my father, but my uh, one of my other sister's father my dad i was a junior so i got drug into the the whole fatherhood piece inadvertently my godfather my godparents had a son who was named after his dad and he was a great kid so i'm sure his dad was very honored to have him as a kid so i figured being a junior as well i needed to honor my father by being a great kid so i sought to be a great kid but then my mom and dad divorced and he disappeared. So here I am with his name. And I figured this name's got to come with instructions. So all of my life, I was, I was kind of bothered with that. So I grew up just being, living recklessly. Uh, wanting my daddy, wanting him to explain to me what my name meant and, 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 and how were we gonna build this big empire that I dreamed of someday we was gonna build simply because of my name. But anyway, after, when I woke up, I found, found myself running amok, just, just defying authority and running into a lot of trouble. By the time I was 25 years old, I had get, run into trouble with the law. I ended up uh, getting sentenced to teach young boys uh, juvenile boys, a class called Emotional Maturity Instruction, and I loved it. But what I noticed in teaching all of these juvenile boys, they loved me too. But what I, what I loved about teaching these juvenile boys was, was that we all came, had the same problem. And 95%, 95 to 99% of them, father absent homes. Wow. So I fell in love with the work and here I am on this trajectory. Uh, did that time, I decided I would, I would study criminal justice because I was working with these young men. I started getting involved in criminal justice because most of the young men did end up going to prison, finding out that most of the men in prison didn't have their fathers in their lives. So it was a common thing. So I figured, hey, I'm going to give my life to this work because most of the 
problems I had in my life stemmed from me missing my father, basically. I wanted my daddy, okay? And uh, most of the men that I interacted with, guess what? They had the same problem. So when we began to interact as a family, that's why you have such a proliferation of gangs. When a group of young men come together and start uh, seeing each other as family, then your role models, you find your role models in that circle right. or in the circle. of. But anyway, uh, being on that track for such a long time, responsible boyhood, manhood, fatherhood, because I feel like, hey, my dad is irresponsible. He didn't tell me who I am. He didn't leave me a, a path, a track to be on or anything. So I was really kind of upset with that. Went on a track to find out his side of the family. I started searching for truth. I ended up going to the church and going to men's conferences. T.D. Jake used to do a, uh, Bishop T.D. Jake used to do what's called a manpower conference. Powerful. Thousands of men. I loved it. So I would go to anything where there were men. And I started getting involved and learning about men and learning about responsible manhood and responsible fatherhood. And I just got sucked in and here I am. I said, hey, uh, this is where I'll spend my time doing work. If Whenever I retire, this is the work that I will do. And today, this is what I'm doing. Well, on uh, YouTube, there's a really great video of you presenting to the Harvard Law School students, I think. Is that right? Yeah. And uh, I, I'm going to put that video, if you are on the Kindred website, I'm going to put that video somewhere near this interview because that is a great, um, that is a really great presentation Carl does there. Uh, but you talk about the, the importance of language and telling stories uh, um, for what you call returning citizens uh, and how this piece is so very important and especially uh, when you're talking about healing fatherhood. Can you speak to that for a second? Yes, it, you know, it, it really hurt me to my heart when, uh, when I did uh, get in trouble and got sentenced and received the label, um, you know, and they call you ex-offender and they call you any number of names, felon, but taking away the humanity of you, you know, it's, it's like being very unforgiving when you strap someone with a label that they're never, never able to shake. You know, it's like you never in, you, you never pay, did, you know, this, your dues, or you never finish paying for whatever you were given that label for. So for me, a name is very, very important. Uh, not only a name, but what you call a person and how you greet a person. Uh, we, we literally embarked upon a campaign and it was revolutionary to speak with the departments of correction to get them to start referring to us as returning citizens. These are people who are coming out of prison who have paid their dues to society and many of them come back. I mean, they're just great human beings. Okay, you, you also have the other end of the spectrum, but you don't want to refer to that person as an ex-convict. You know, that person is a human being. And we took that before the National Institutes of Health and said it's just literally unhealthy 
to continue to call somebody an ex-offender. It's, it's not real. We have to think about what we're saying. I still may offend somebody today with something that I say. I'm not an ex-offender, you know what I mean? And when we think about what we're saying, it helps us to have better relationships because then we consider who we're talking to and how we're talking. We're sensitive to how we're talking to that person. But yes, fatherhood uh, for me uh, is very near and dear to my heart. So anything that I have to give in that space of my experience, I give it. And because most of the young men that I encounter, because I've experienced just about every societal ill in America, okay? When you talk about high unemployment, when you're talking about low to no education, when you talk about the social determinants of health, low to no access to adequate health care, when you begin to speak about mass incarceration, you're speaking directly to my parts of my experience. And Lisa, if you look and refer to my bio, you'll see that my journey has informed my service today. Most yes. of the work that I do has a lot to do with my experience. I mean, just growing up as a black man in America, you know, yeah. being incarcerated, dropping out of high school, being not able to find adequate employment, you know, uh, adequate housing, safe places to live, you know, access to uh, adequate health care. So I've got the, just like the COVID-19 has exposed the comorbidities among vulnerable populations. I'm a vulnerable population, uh, high blood pressure, you know, uh, mm -hmm. you know, these comorbidities, heart disease, and all of these things, it's about quality of life. So I seek to address real concerns. So the young men that I deal with, all most of them have experienced or are going through experiencing many of the things that I was, was able to successfully navigate through. So I've got a very special toolbox that I share with them in order to help them successfully navigate. Because guess what? There's inevitabilities that you will face when you're a felon and you got a label, you're going to be faced with rejection with employment. You're going to have a hard time with a lot of different situations. And with those inevitabilities, when you're aware of them and you're ready to deal with them, you're better able to successfully navigate and overcome those. So that's what we're about. And that's why I'm a part of Robe. I love what they're doing because in order for us to deal with inequity in any way, we have to deal with, uh, be knowledgeable of the inequities that exist. So uh, language, you know, we talk about equality when really what we need is equity, mm -hmm. you know, because equality, if you just give me what somebody else have, if I'm starting from below ground zero, then we're still not even, we're still not equal. So uh, language, when we begin to speak about language, we need to be mindful of the messaging because uh, it just, it says so much and it can instruct and inform someone in the wrong way. Well, I have a lot of questions for both of you, but 
uh, I really want to give Dave <laughs> and Reshma a chance to ask you some questions first. Um, so I'm going to, Dave, this is Dave Mittler, Kindred Social Justice uh, Editor. Um, hey, Dave. <laughs> hey, Dave. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I'll ask a question and then, yeah, we'll, we'll just share the, the space. One question that comes up for me to both of you, something that I noticed from, from what you both shared your stories is there's a lot of unlearning to do and a lot of new learning. So I, I see the unlearning as how do you help men to unlearn toxic masculinity? How do you help men to unlearn you know, things like you shared, Greg, like not feeling qualified to raise a boy, you know, or, or to, to really unlearn from their own childhoods and their own wounds um, from their, their family system. And then it does seem like there's a lot of work uh, for, for new learning. I just wondered your thoughts with the men that you work with, how do you, how do you support them in this work? Because it, it's one thing to provide information um, but it's another thing to really, you know, work with uh, another person, walk with them through what they've experienced personally, and to really make the tie that I heard from you, Greg, is that adult development is tied to child development, and that child development is, is tied to adult development. They're very inextricably linked. And so it, it feels like there's a lot of wisdom in everything that you each experienced as children and as young men that is informing how you work with men. I just wonder if you, if you wanted to share anything more about that, because that seemed very significant. Well, I, I think um, that is a very, I'll say a, a touchy area, because let's say in, in the MedStar class format, it was, it was a one class. So it was, it was, that was it, that, that day, that was pretty much it. So, it's kind of, I'll say for this, I, I would kind of use this with my kids where my son, he, he loved history. And now, now he would see, let's say if he saw a Mexican and in his mind, all Mexicans wore sombreros because that's what he, that's what he saw in the book. And, you know, but, I would say, well, you haven't had the experience. Right now, the book is all you have, and that that there's a lot more to that. So, so in in dealing with, I would say, you know, dads in the class, there's there's a there's a reality that I have to know my strengths and weakness, and how far I can go. So, but but the main key for me that I've seen and, and I believe in watching others is I have to have my own story. If I, if I don't have my own story of, of, of me overcoming in areas that relate or similar, it's, it's hard to cross that bridge. You know, it's like literally saying, it's like, hey, you know, Hawaii is wonderful, it's beautiful. You see the palm trees, but then say, well, how many times have you gone? Oh, I haven't gone. Well, instantly it's like, oh, you know, so I think, I think the number one thing is to have your own story, your own story of struggle, because what that says is to someone else is, you know, you can make it, you can do it. 
you know, it's, it, you don't need to have to, you know, be with a, a person. And you, you, if it happens where you grow in a relationship with someone while they're going through a very similar journey in different areas, that's great. But I've seen people where I've directed people and I've asked them, I said, do you have health insurance on your job? And they'll say yes. And I say most people will use their health insurance for if they're sick, spouse is sick, child is sick, break a leg. I said, but how many of you use your health insurance for therapy? What do you do when you, you're emotionally sick? And most people have insurance and don't even and won't even use it in that area. So that's one of those for those times, you know, there's times where it's just it's a great thing just to point the person in that direction. Uh, if you have resources uh, available, that's great. Um, but I think the key is, do you have your own story? That that is like, you know, that that card that says, you know, I'm I'm qualified to come into this room. And and, and David, you you ask, uh, what are some practical ways that you know we we serve or help these that meet these dads' need? That's what I love about uh, the organization Rove. Uh, uh, you know, Rove was birthed from the organization Rose reaching our sisters everywhere, okay, which is about health, health equity and, you know, breastfeeding, uh, increasing breastfeeding rates and that kind of thing. But anyway, Rove holds every Monday what is called a baby cafe. And this is where women come in and learn how to breastfeed. They learn the they actually learn the, the skill of breastfeeding and robe is present on those Mondays to interface with the dads because a lot of the dads come in and they're not in the baby cafe with the mother of their child, their wife or partner, whoever, but they get an opportunity to come over and sit and talk with someone like Greg and myself and Wesley, who you've met with. And uh, uh, a lot of times they have needs a lot of times they may be unemployed. A lot of times they may, you know, they have issues and we get to talk about those issues. And because Rove has wisdom council members like Mr. Greg Long, we have real conversations about real life. And we talk about real issues and we seek to meet the needs, real needs of the people that we serve through Rove. So uh, this is one way that we uh, do, David, meet the needs. We also provide weekly breastfeeding support classes for Amerigroup, which is one of our clients that we work with. We actually provide the breastfeeding support training for the fathers, okay? And uh, we, we, have, we provide breast pumps for the mothers if the dad decides that you know, if mom, mama's going back to work, then you can provide breast milk for the baby and dad can feed the baby now, can actually breastfeed, okay? Uh, so that, that kind of support. And then the basic education uh, that we do, uh, we do other community events with father-serving organizations, Fathers Incorporated, Community Council of Metro Atlanta, My Brother's Keeper, there are several collab collaborative agencies that we're working with in order to meet the practical needs of our constituents. It's, it's real. So um, I love the, it's, it's cutting edge. The work that we're doing, 
is revolutionary. Yes, it is. It is. Yeah, I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna add to that. I think um, I I was just thinking about one class um where there was this guy and he waited to the end of the class, and um, this guy was very sharp, and so. It's funny, I left the corporate world and then wound up doing classes where corporate guys would come through. And, but this guy was, he was really sharp, dressed really nice. And I remember we had, we were leasing a building across from the treasury department here in DC. It was a really nice building. And I think a lot of guys would come in and you know, the look of the building and everything. And, and for this particular guy though, it was like, that was his norm. And it didn't phase him as far as the look of the building or anything. And when the class was over, he was still sitting in the chair. And this is just, he's a, he's a white guy. And he, he said, um, I said, Hey, how you doing? He said, well, I wanted to ask you something. And, you know, he talked about how successful he was. He said, but I'm afraid I'm going to do what my father did. And, you know, I sat down with him and, he said he had a daughter and he talked about how much he loved his daughter. And, but that fear of, you know, just like how Carl said that, that how you can have that lingering ex-con, that, that lingering of, I'm going to do what my dad did. Um, for, for this particular guy, and what I learned from that moment was, when when the, the person lets go lets their guard down and if another person is willing to share what they've overcome there's no there's no race we we were the same i was a, a person who was in the process of being in healing or healed in the area he was one that was looking for healing and wow. i i got i got to see that many times and so I understand that how racism really works. It, it separates, but it also separates emotional pain because you can, one side could look at the abundance of what they have in their opportunities and not even see their pain. And the other side can look at the lack of opportunities. And that's what's, what's for, for, you know, that's foremost in their view. But once you take away that, um, you know, the, the facade, you know what I mean? That I, I, I'm, what happened in your family wasn't a color thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I can relate to that. And that's why we, I just got off a call recently, uh, Wesley and Calvin. And just to, to, you know, touch on the fact that during this time, you know, we were talking about domestic violence and how the numbers and everything are really coming out in different countries all over the world, Germany, yeah. India. And, and I was saying that we have to make sure that we don't respond out of panic because most organizations, they will look at this and say, okay, we have to do something about this. And their goal is, is going to be, how do we make this stop? And I said, that's unrealistic. I said, you got to go for the five. And then once you go for the five, you make it 10. You go for the 20 but that's always going to be there. And that is, you know, that barrier that's always going to be there. And I think, you know, us as an organization and plenty of the organizations that work the same, and that is you, you go out for the one, you go out for the small numbers and, and you get what you can because in that small number, they're the ones that are 
more than likely making the decision to let that guard down. You know. Greg, are you talking about the statistics coming out about during quarantine, domestic yep. violence going up? That's what you're referring to right now? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And, and see, it, the reason why I said that, it, to respond out of panic, if, if I am, uh, you know, if I'm a violent person at home, and, and whether it's molestation or whatever, I'm not going to go to a program. <laughs> to get healed more than likely. I mean, it can happen like that, but, but it has to be done in a way where it's just like Carl said about speaking the language. You got to find that right language. Got to find the language. Okay. So that they can come in to an area or whatever it is, an event, and it's not violent offender. It's, you got to take that away because they're already going, they go, they're already going to run from all the mainstream titles. So you kind of have to go you know, through the side door or through the back door, but change that wording and you, you kind of add it in, like, you know, with what you're already doing to say, this is just another, another thing that a person has to decide to go down this journey for their own healing and, and make some major changes, you know, in their life. And no matter what the sickness, I'm not going to look at this person any differently. Dave, do you have a follow-up question? I, I really appreciated what you both shared, and I wanted to see if we hand off to Rishma uh, for any questions. Thank you. Hi, I actually don't have a, a question. I'm, I'm mostly just I'm so enamored by hearing your story. Um, I want to share a little bit about myself because I feel like this is just a very important conversation to have. Um, your guys' stories very much feel to me as a quest for identity. And I feel like as someone who's part of Generation Z, we don't hear, we don't hear um, older generation stories about identity and trying to figure out who they are as much. Um, so I am someone who was adopted and I don't have any ties to my biological parents and growing up that's, that was very difficult and it still is very difficult to me um, to this day because I'm trying to figure out where I came from, I'm trying to figure out my roots and how that fits into who I've become outside of that. And um, I have certain family members who constantly referred to me as the adopted child. And we're talking about language and the importance of language. So that was a big struggle for me of how do I find acceptance if you label me as something that means you don't accept me as your family. So being labeled as the adopted child or even the brown child in a family that, ha that has a lot of white people in it, um, that was very difficult for me in my quest for identity and it stopped my, my quest for identity for a very long time. I almost just accepted anything that anyone threw at me because I didn't know what to do. I didn't understand how to fight that. Um, so I'm saying all this because I think your guys' stories are so important and they connect to so many things that I see my generation struggling with. Um, even if they don't have this 
additional layer of being adopted and not having like a bloodline to refer back to when it comes to your DNA and your programming. Um, this quest for identity is so important and something that we really need everyone's stories on. So I'm just very grateful to have had the opportunity to talk to you guys about this. I appreciate you sharing that because, uh, and I want to share this. Uh, my last name is Root. It's, it's a rare last name. Anyway, I went on this quest looking for my daddy's side of the family years ago. Anyway, uh, I, found the, I found what I thought was his family and I thought it was very small. Then a couple of years ago on Facebook, I saw that this family with my same last name was having a family reunion. So I contacted the person who was hosting the reunion and she said, oh, we have reunions every year. We are a huge family. And I went, wow. Anyway, I went to the reunion. No connection whatsoever. The most humiliating experience. I spent a lot of money too. But I went and no, I said, you have no family in Georgia? They said, no. So it was... But guess what? It was the best thing that I could have done for me in my quest for identity. Because today I'm okay with that. I'm okay with knowing that we weren't the only root clan and that we weren't just so very small that my last name was going to die out. That was a very real concern for me because I was the only son by the man who gave me his name. Okay. So it was a real concern, but today I can walk in confidence. Right, right. And, and you know, it's interesting. You're, I remember someone said this. They said, uh, there are many people in the universe where what was needed was just a vessel for the child to come through, not a family. Ooh. And I know for myself, you know, in growing up, a lot of my enemy, enemies were in my own family as far as belief systems and you know, how they did things where I actually had to break away from. And I think the main thing is, and it's like I, you know, taught my kids and teach my kids in it, the level of how brutally honest you are with yourself. And meaning when you, when you come to places that, you know, challenge your belief system or even correction, or when you make a mistake as far as forgiving yourself, and how the level of how you love yourself, that's where, you know, I, I'm still, I, I know who I am, but there's still other obstacles that I, I have not yet experienced that's going to bring more of that out of me. Cause so it's not a, it's not a one stop. That's like this year, I went through something with my mom, she had brain surgery and it was a really rough time because we weren't told what was going to happen afterwards, the rehabs and all these different things. And me and my mom, we were okay, but this year I had to serve her in a way, look out for her bills, you name it. And I wound up growing and loving my mom more, but I made decisions that I'm, I'm not going to just, you know, I'm, I'm going to fight for her. So in fighting for her, I wound up forgiving her for other things I hadn't thought about, but that helped me to get more to the real me. So... So I, I want to take us into a little deeper part of this, and I, I'm going to use uh, Reshma's segue to go there. And uh, I want to talk about race 
And I want to share first that when I interviewed Kemmery Bug, who is the founder of Rose and mother of Wesley, who's one of the founders of Robe, uh, she talked to me about how there is the, she said, I'll have to try to remember her words exactly, but she said, you know, what we're trying to teach white healthcare professionals, and I should just uh, say, first of all, uh, reference the, you know, the Blackmore mother's rate of death in childbirth is horrific in the United States right now. And Rose has been looking at why is that? She's been looking at why is that for 40 years as a nurse, um, especially as a, a, a black nurse. And, and she has, as you said, Carl, she has integrated her personal story, her, prof her professional training, and then let her passion to serve lead her into what I, I really do believe she is a national treasure. Just listening to her story was fantastic. But what she said that I found really illuminating as a white person is when, when, when she is teaching white professionals about how to communicate with mothers in the black community, they really don't understand the way the black community is relational and relationship-based. And it's a very different kind of community than uh, white professionals. She said, if you hang a poster at the nurse's station and you expect people to come to their meeting and then they don't come and you say, well, they just don't wanna know then, that's not true. And that's actually uh, really offensive, she said, because you didn't take the time to even get to know the mothers that you say you want to serve and what is what are their real needs and how does this community really uh, already know each other They're very relationship based so there's this huge divide between um, the way uh, white professionals are operating and their you know blindness to how the black community she is saying is relational um, i also want to throw in that i just um, heard Charles Eisenstein, who's one of my favorite thinkers, who talks about the new story often, say that uh, when we talk about white privilege, we need to recognize what a burden it is to be white <laughs> and privileged, because this is the curse of the Western world right now. This is why we're in the shape that we're in, this rational reductionist separatist view that does not allow for relationship and connection with ourselves, with each other, with nature. And he said, this is, you know, when you say uh, you have a white privileged background, you, you're really identifying yourself as, as part of the problem. Um, and, and it's not a privilege at all. It's really a problem. So I, I want to talk about this because I think that your work, you know, we're talking about black men breastfeeding and social justice is going to be, there is going to be a story here and an approach and insight and perspective that we're just not going to see. And I'm wondering if you could be bold enough to tell us uh, what is it you think that we're not seeing and we should know. Well, for one thing, the mission of Robe is to impact to educate equip and empower men to impact an increase in breastfeeding rates in the african-american community and a decrease in infant mortality rates in the african-american community now as you may or may not know 
uh, infant mortality and, and maternal mortality in the African-American community is almost double. It's double other communities. Now we've got men having a conversation about these things. What is so revolutionary about that is, is this. I said earlier that we came from, I came from an era of what is considered toxic masculinity. Now today we're dealing with, I call them metrosexuals. Uh, you know, as a baby boomer, uh, the, though that generation after us, they were somewhat, somewhat a softer, gentler male. Okay. Uh, that's the way we considered them. You know, they, they washed the dishes, they washed the clothes, they ironed the clothes, they cooked dinner, they kept the baby, they fed the baby. You know, a generation men before didn't do that. You no, know, like mama's baby. So I said all that to say this, coming from that era and recognizing the difference today, I think the young men are better, uh, this generation are better suited to bring about the equity that is so needed in our society. Because again, we're so inextricably intertwined as our hum humanity that what impacts you impacts me. What impacts me impacts you. It's like America right now used to be one of the, the leading nation in education and a lot of different areas but because years ago we decided that we would not allow a certain certain communities to be educated today we're experiencing the residual effects of not allowing a part of our society to be as educated as another so now we're not as educated as other civilized nations and and it has an impact the coronavirus if we treat all of the entitled people and not treat those who are not the, the most vulnerable, we're gonna continue to have this coronavirus until we decide to treat everybody. And once we treat everybody, then we are going at an equitable solution. We're going at a realistic solution. But until we decide that I want for my brother what I want for myself, we're never gonna be that great nation that we are intended to be. Right. Yeah, I think, um... Uh, you know, probably even piggybacking on, on what Carl said. There's a, I mean, you can, you can call it, you can call it judging, um, you know, another group, but I, 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 I can look at it like that, but I think I look at it also as there's a, a loss. There's a loss that has to be accepted. So to, to see from another person or another group's perspective, you gotta lose something. You have to step away from something. Uh, I remember <laughs> as a kid, my mom would say, I used to watch the Brady Bunch all the time. And my mom would say, you act like you wanna be a Brady. <laughs> and it wasn't until years later, I thought about that one day and I said, well, I did, I, you know, I, I watched the Brady Bunch. I didn't watch the Partridge Family. So there was some things I didn't watch. Like I didn't watch Sanford and Son, but I did love the Brady Bunch. And I realized I got to see, for me, the first view of a peaceful, functional family. Now, of course, that wasn't a real family. That was a, that was a TV family, but I saw people that talked out their problems. Um, 
you know, I, I saw the mother and father at home. They had fun together. They traveled together. And so, but there again, just like the, the media today and outside influences can shape the generations. Well, I was a little kid and I was looking at where the white generation was shaped from. And so in growing up, you know, that's why in my mind, I would look at like, I didn't look at Archie Bunker, but I would say, man, it seems so different from the other shows because they argue and fight. And then they would remind me of the Archie, the Archie Bunker show would remind me of the Jeffersons where they would argue and good times and different things. So you could, I, I wound up being in film and photography, but I was in the TV shows as a kid and I would sit there and it's, it's crazy for me to be that young and I would just sit there and look at the differences. And, and how did I feel while I was watching it? And when I look at people today, even as far as when I did the classes, you know, there's still, uh, you know, on white America's side, there's still that, that hope or that holding on to this family that was created. That's not real. It's like the American dream, you know, and, and, but in doing it, I don't, I don't care how bad it could be on their side. That part to just not relate, to say, I'm not like this group. But really, it's no different. That, that, that American dream is fizzled out on that side also. So, but it takes courage for a person to accept, you know, that reality and to, 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 to step over into, and that's where I think one of the words that came up was relationship. It's relationship. And, and so I know I have learned and grown throughout the years from relationships. One of my, my biggest fears, I know for me, I, I said, I prayed, I said, God, I don't want to be afraid of no man. So that's one of my son's fears. He's homeschooled and he just went to college. This is his first year. But people would always say, aren't you afraid of your child being antisocial? Aren't you, you afraid of how he's going to make friends and things like that? And I would say, no. I said, because that comes from the parent. If the parents are antisocial, then more than likely your child is going to be. I said, we're not like that. I would take my, if I had a meeting and I had to sit down with a manager at Lowe's, I took my kids. I said, this is where you learn confrontation, you know, and I would put them in front of anybody, meaning it wasn't a color thing. It was about what you're going to learn through this situation. And so relationships have been reduced to color not what you're going to learn and what can you get from this person when you cross paths. And that's the part where when you, you ask, you say, what are people, you know, possibly not seeing? And that's the part where most people don't realize your, your, your life is affected by the relationships. If I, if I had the same relationships I had when I was 16 years old, then how far am I going to grow? Where's my mind going to expand to? It's not too many different things that we're going to talk about. We're just going to get old and we're going to talk about the different changes, but we need people. And that is the power of how racism is done. It's basically <laughs> to, to deceive to where you don't need people. You just need this group. And that's not reality. That is not true. That is false. You need relationships. A child born 
who's born into this world needs relationships. I remember a study where I think it was Hitler. They said Hitler, I mean, not him personally, but his, his sciences did an experiment or something with a child and they left the child alone with no human contact and the baby died. You know, that that's powerful, you know? So that's, that's my, my thoughts. And I think piggybacking, but just, you know, uh, another part of what Carl was saying. That's, um, there's studies that were done in Romania on Romanian orphanages of infants who were left without touch. And uh, they studied, I think later, how the infants who weren't touched um, died of lack of touch. And then there's the classic um, Ashley Montague book, uh, Touch as well. So you're absolutely correct. The relationship, the being together, um, that is the part that we're missing right now. It really is uh, something that we need to work on healing. And I, I was just thinking as you're both talking, I really could have called this series Healing Fatherhood um, because that sounds like the work that you're doing and it is tremendous. And as you said, Greg, sometimes I get up in the morning, I've said this to people for 22 years as an activist, and I get overwhelmed and then I, I think, no, 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 I, I'm just going to take my little toothpick and sit at the base of the mountain and, and do what I can do. And that's all I can do at the end of the day. I put away my toothpick. <laughs> that's, right. that's it. <laughs> that's all I got. So uh, I like that you say one person. <laughs> right. That might be just the one person and that's enough. That's good enough. That's <laughs> it. That's it. I, that's like at, at the grocery store. I mean, people I've seen for, you know, for some time, you know, years, you know, I, I was like, hey, you know, what is your name? You know, you know, we introduce each other, uh, you know, even in this pandemic. But that's one thing with my, my neighborhood or different places to let my kids see, see me speak to people, meet people on, on a regular, you know, and, and meaning speak without a reason. You just walk past, hey, how you doing? Or offer people. That's like when workers come to my house. You know, I'll offer them snacks or certain things. You know, I, I got taught that years ago. It's like, hey, when guests come in, you know, try not to let them leave empty handed at times. You know what I mean? So, and that, you know, I've, I've had workers and they're like, man, I really appreciate that. You know, so that's a part of me that I'm thankful that is, is in me because I did get to a point at one time where I went through a struggle and I didn't want to talk to nobody. But I, I think that's what happens. That's a, that's a part of growth. You know, and that's where, you know, I think right now, especially with the six feet away and, and I'm not, I'm not taking away from the virus, you know, but my mind says, well, wow, you know, you had people who this was their normal as far as not being relational. What's going to happen after this? There's going to be, you know, some of this, this is going to be continued to be the norm with some people, you know, where it's almost like you have to be a little more aggressive to have relationships. <laughs> for the next generation, you know what I mean? Yes, and, and I mean, I, for, for me having an 18-year-old and a 14-year-old, I, I constantly look at the generations. And I, when I would do fatherhood class, I would say, you know, if this is your first child, you raise this child like this is your great-great-great-great-grandchild. Because in raising the child, you have to look at what you do. This child is going to be the report card for your grandkids and your great grandkids, you know, uh, you know, it's like with uh, 
I went to a class one time and this this uh, uh, a woman Jill Cloud. She said something really, you know, great that stuck with me. She said, you know, in parenting you have to learn how to see the do not touch signs, so that you do not do not destroy the character of the child, which will go on for generations. So when I look at the generations, you know, going forward, you know, with the the texting and I'm not saying it's bad. I look at so many things as a tool. And I say, you know, I told, you know, I was on a call the other day and I said, I said, you know, money is a tool. The internet can be used as a tool, but once the purpose of that tool is lost and, and it changes, the person changes because if it's, let's use an example of money. Now it turns into greed. It turns into how can I have, you know, protect it so no one else doesn't get, you know, it takes on a whole nother form. And so when I look at the generations, they're, they're great things in the world, but they're taking a different form when it comes to the generations because the level of importance of it has, has, has gone from here to here. So yeah. it gets harder, it gets harder for the parents or, or adults to be able to get a word in, which is a helpful word, because this thing that was started out, you know, I, I told them on the call, I said, you know, really, when the internet started, it was more so for businesses, internet, I mean, the emails and everything else for businesses. And that was the main communication, you know, medium. But now the internet has become the emotional dumping ground. That's what I call it. Oh, yeah where the generate the younger generations they go in and it's like an emotional free-for-all you know no no uh guidelines or anything it's just you you do what you want but most of these kids are you know have dysfunctional areas and they're freely given of themselves in a an environment that that that's what it does it just permeates that you know you can come here and act how you want you know post what you want and think you're going to leave and live a normal life, but you just, the generations don't realize, you just gave up a, an emotion to the world that you're walking away, you don't realize that took something from you. Whether it's a post about what someone else did or whether it's some explicit type stuff or just sharing your problems to the wrong person. You know, so. Yes. Yes, that is a difficulty with the technology and young people is the, I don't, I haven't seen them able to imagine how far in their future the, this stuff is following them around now because it doesn't get pulled down and you, know, you can't even deactivate a Facebook page once you put it up. I've tried. <laughs> so. Well, can the two of you tell us where we can find you? Greg, where can people find you? Is there a website you want to send them to? The Robe website? or um, You can through Robe or you can email me, uh, greglong426 at gmail. Okay. Uh, but definitely, definitely uh, there or Robe. Okay. And the Robe website is breastfeedingrobe, R-O-B-E, uh, okay. dot org. And yes, dot org. That's right. And uh, you can reach me at croot at breastfeedingrose.org. Okay. All right. Well, thank you both again for coming today. I really appreciate your time. And uh, thank you so much, Reshma and Dave. Um, thank you all very much. Yes. Thank Thanks you. for having us. And nice to meet all of you.
Yes. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Have a good one.